Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And today's podcast is uh, inspired by Miss Fisher's Murder Mystery. <laughs> I love that show and I love those books. And a couple of the recurring characters, Bert and Sess, met while fighting at Gallipoli in World War One. And the books are set in Australia. And a couple of them that I've read so far have Australian soldiers' experiences at Gallipoli as a recurring theme. So here are some things that I knew about Gallipoli before researching this episode. The first was it was a battle. <laughs> a campaign, really. There were several battles within it. Uh... I also knew it was in World War One, And then based on things that I gleaned from context while reading and watching Miss Fisher's murder mysteries, uh, I, it seems to have been a pretty hard time for a lot of the people involved in it. And if you grew up in Australia, New Zealand, or Turkey, you probably know a whole lot more about it than what I did, right? So Gallipoli has actually become a part of the national identity of all of those three places, We've also gotten a bunch of listener requests to talk about the Gallipoli, the Gallipoli campaign, including Shauna, Amelia, Julie, Evelyn, Brendan, Louise, and Katrina, probably other people too. Some of that stemmed from the fact that this year was the 100th anniversary of the Gallipoli campaign. Fortunately, the folks at Oxford University Press graciously sent us a review copy of a new book on Gallipoli a few months ago by historian Jenny McLeod. Really good book. I'm just going to go ahead and say that now, and I'm going to say it again later. But that made it easier for us to get started on this one. And one of the most memorable and infamous aspects of World War I was its long, brutal stalemate against the enormous system of trenches known as the Western Front. Although the powers involved all expected the war to be over quickly from the outset, it reached an impasse almost immediately. Tensions had been building for decades as various European powers expanded their empires And the tipping point came, as a lot of folks probably know, with the assassination of Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife by Serbian nationalists on June 28, 1914. Within a month, Austria-Hungary had demanded that Serbia take steps to prevent terrorism, and Serbia went to its its ally, Russia, for help. Austria-Hungary's ally, Germany, declared war on Russia, France, and Belgium. And by August 4th, Britain had declared war on Germany as well. More declarations of war followed really soon. This was in August. By September 15th, the first trenches were being dug. The Gallipoli campaign, which started in early 1915, was an attempt on the part of the Allies, that meaning Great Britain, France, and Russia, to break their stalemate with the central powers, which were Germany, the Ottoman Empire, and Austria-Hungary. Bulgaria at this point had not yet entered the war. There were two main goals driving the Gallipoli campaign. The first was to weaken Germany by going after the Ottoman Empire, which had entered the war in November of 1914. Allied leaders also hoped that active warfare going on near their borders would prompt other Mediterranean nations to enter the war on their side. The other was to try to open a sea route between uh, Russia and its allies in Europe. The Gallipoli Peninsula is bordered by the Aegean Sea to the north and the west and the Dardanelles Strait to the south and the east. 
If the Allies could get access to the Dardanelles Strait, they could have a water route to the Sea of Marmara, and that would lead them to the Ottoman Empire capital of Constantinople, which is now Istanbul. If the Allies then took Constantinople, this would, number one, be a decisive victory over the Ottoman Empire, and number two, allow them to go from the Aegean Sea into the Black Sea, and therefore Russia, via the Bosphorus Strait. This was something the British military had actually been discussing for a while, even before the Ottoman Empire formally entered the war. A water route that was navigable year-round and could connect Russia to its European allies would, after all, be an extremely handy thing to have, and this was the only one. Winston Churchill was the first lord of the Admiralty and was one of the plan's earlier proponents. However, the rest of the Admiralty thought it much too risky until the war actually started to drag on. Much like everyone had thought the whole war would be over by Christmas, back when it had started in June of 1914, the British believed the Gallipoli campaign would be swift and decisive. In the words of Churchill, quote, a good army of 50,000 men and sea power, that is the end of the Turkish menace. However, the fact that the Allies could use a water route to Russia was just as obvious to the Ottoman Empire as it was to the Allied powers themselves. So in the months between the start of the war and the Allies' actual attempt to take the Dardanelles Strait, the Ottoman Empire was building fortifications on both sides of the strait and laying mines in the strait itself. This meant that by the time British and French ships moved in to bombard the Dardanelles for the first time on February 19, 1915, the Ottoman Empire was more than ready. The British Navy knew that its guns were better at fighting other ships than at fighting targets on land, and this uh, actually held true during the first bombardment of the Dardanelles. While the Allies' naval force did successfully prompt the Ottoman Empire to abandon some forts and outposts that were very close to the shore, it did not have a lot of other success. The Allies tried to bring in minesweepers to clear the mines out of the strait, but they fell, uh, the force fell under heavy fire from the remaining Ottoman forces and had to fall back. A second naval advance into the Dardanelles was attempted on March 18th of 1915. Once again, the British battleships came under heavy fire. They also ran into undetected mines. Three Allied ships sank, and three others were heavily damaged. So this was a second unsuccessful attempt. At this point, the strategy shifted to invading the Gallipoli Peninsula by land instead of the Dardanelles Strait by sea. And there were troops reasonably nearby. The Australian Imperial Force and the New Zealand Expeditionary Force had been diverted to Egypt and were actually training there. These two forces eventually became the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, or ANZAC. The ANZAC troops combined with troops from Great Britain and Ireland, France, India, and Newfoundland to become the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force, led by Lieutenant General Sir Ian Hamilton. We will talk about the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force's attempt to take Gallipoli after we have a brief word from one of our fantastic sponsors. So getting back to the story, on April 25th of 1915, the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force launched an amphibious assault of the Gallipoli Peninsula, which required about 200 ships to maneuver into position. It was a difficult and devastating mission. Throughout, the Ottoman forces had the high ground and the cliffs above the beach were dotted with snipers' nests. The Ottoman Empire also had a good intelligence network and had correctly predicted where the Allied forces were going to try to make landfall. And it had fortifications at those points, including men and barbed wire already in place. 
The Allies had two landing points in that April 25th assault. One was the southern tip of the peninsula at Cape Helles. This one was the more strategically important point, and so the most experienced units were sent there. About 17,000 Allied troops landed at the Cape in that first assault. The other, which is nicknamed Anzac Cove, was on the Aegean Sea side of the peninsula, and it was where another 20,000 men, predominantly Anzac troops, made landfall on the 25th. The force that landed there attempted to do so under cover of darkness, and consequently, they wound up a couple of kilometers off course due to a navigational error. Because they came in at a particularly treacherous and indefensible spot, the force that landed there had real difficulty reconnecting with one another and getting to where they were actually supposed to be. The Allied force making this initial assault on Gallipoli was a much, much bigger force than the Ottoman troops defending it. Uh, The Allies outnumbered the Ottomans almost two to one in that first uh, piece of the campaign. But even though the Allies had much bigger numbers, the Ottomans had, as we noted before, the high ground. Plus, they were defending their home territory, which a lot of them were already deeply familiar with. The people who were landing from the sea, on the other hand, had almost no knowledge of the rocky, jagged, cliff-lined, ravine-filled peninsula. This meant that during the initial assault, the Allied force encountered enormous casualties, and the assault did not make the quick, decisive hole in the stalemate that the British had hoped for. Instead, it simply turned into a second stalemate, once again driven by trench warfare. With much difficulty, the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force established two beachheads at their two landing points uh, that they had made in that initial assault. But on top of this territory being difficult to take, it was extremely hard to hang on to. The terrain was so rough that they really couldn't get in and out with vehicles. Stretcher bearer John Simpson Kirkpatrick of the Australian Army Medical Corps, better known just as John Simpson, became famous for carrying injured men from the front down to Anzac Cove on a donkey that had been brought in to carry water. And he did this basically from the time of the first landing on April 25th until he was killed in action on May 19th. Unfortunately, in spite of heroic efforts like Simpson's, evacuating injured men from the Gallipoli front was often not enough. Because the expeditionary force had come in from the sea to try to take a narrow peninsula, they had a shortage of land and nowhere to really build a field hospital. So injured troops had to be taken by boat to hospital ships that were waiting offshore. And men waiting at the beach for these boats often came under fire. Once aboard these hospital ships, sometimes things were not much better. Without a source of fresh water, water had to be strictly rationed, and there just was not enough to keep sick and injured people both clean and hydrated. This meant that illness was an enormous problem, both on the front lines and on the hospital ships themselves, with dysentery striking both the wounded and the doctors and nurses taking care of them. Overall, illness ended up causing far more casualties among the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force than combat did. Aside from the lack of fresh water, there also wasn't enough available space to dig good latrines. People were living in close proximity to their waste and to the bodies of people who had died in no man's land and could not be retrieved. So there was absolutely no good way to keep flies who landed on bodies, waste, and food alike from spreading disease. And as a result, it's not a great leap of logic to figure this out, but typhoid was rampant. 
So the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force was basically trapped in their trenches, eating mostly corned beef, which they knew as bully beef, and ration biscuits. There's actually a sweet biscuit that's known as Anzac biscuits, uh, purportedly because they were a common treat in care packages from home. These ration biscuits that they were subsisting on were not that. They were basically hardtack that had to be soaked to be edible at all. Rats were everywhere. The troops had nowhere to relax or rest other than literally in the trenches. In the summer, heat and hot weather illnesses flourished only to be replaced by cold, rain, hypothermia, frostbite, and cold weather illnesses in the winter. It was, to be short, miserable. By comparison, the Ottoman troops who were defending their own territory using a system of trenches they'd had plenty of time to dig before the Allies even arrived were frequently supplied with fresh fruits and vegetables from local farms. They even had brick ovens for cooking in their trenches. Their rations of food and water were generous. The Ottoman field hospitals were well-appointed, and illnesses were not nearly the problem for them as they were for the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force. Throughout the Allied occupation of Gallipoli, there were repeated attempts by the Allies to take the high ground and by the Ottoman force to drive the Allies out. One of the most horrific came on May 19th of 1915, when an enormous Ottoman force made a direct assault on Anzac Cove, which, though fierce, did not break through the Anzac line. There were, however, 628 Anzac casualties. On the Ottoman side, there were about 10,000 casualties, with 3,500 dead. The worst, I mean, that's awful, but to make things worse... Many of the dead were left in no man's land between the two to the two trenches, and it was May, and it was hot. And these bodies were left there until May 24th, when the two forces arranged a temporary ceasefire to bury them. After this point, attitudes among many Anzacs shifted when it came to their Ottoman adversaries. Previously, the prevailing perception was that the Ottomans were brutal and savage. Think of those propaganda posters that really dehumanize the enemy. But particularly after the experience of both armies simultaneously burying the bodies of their fallen compatriots, who had all been lying dead in no man's land for almost a week, they instead began to feel some sympathy. The Allies brought in another wave of troops on August 6th, hoping that greater numbers would help them finally wrest Gallipoli from Ottoman control. I want to make it clear that both sides had been bringing in reinforcements at various points during this whole campaign. The number of troops that was sent for this August 6th assault, though, was far smaller than what had actually been requested, and the effort was, once again, ultimately unsuccessful. The planned fast, efficient takeover had actually dragged on through eight months of trench warfare, with both sides building dizzying complex systems of trenches and tunnels, which they used to try to sabotage one another from below. Lieutenant General Sir Charles Monroe eventually replaced Hamilton as the commander-in-chief of the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force, and he immediately recommended an evacuation. The Allies decided this was the best course of action on November 22nd. A series of nighttime evacuations started on December 15th, with most of the Allied troops departing on the course of four or five nights. The last of the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force left Gallipoli on January 8th and 9th, 1916. The evacuation was covered by self-firing rifles, which used water trickling into a can to create enough weight to move a lever, which would fire the gun. 
These served mostly as a distraction for the Ottoman force, making it seem as though those trenches were still occupied. The evacuation was made with a minimum of casualties. It was the most logistically effective move of the entire campaign. We will talk about the aftermath of the Gallipoli campaign and how it's remembered today after another brief word from our sponsor. And now we will get back to our story. Outside of the context of the rest of World War I, the casualty toll of the Gallipoli campaign seems staggering. More than 480,000 Allied troops took part in the Gallipoli campaign, and there were more than 250,000 casualties, including 46,000 deaths. Just from Australia, there were 28,150 casualties and 8,700 deaths. Nearly a sixth of the Australians who lost their lives in World War I did so at the Gallipoli campaign. 2,779 New Zealanders died at Gallipoli, which was about a fifth of the New Zealanders who landed there. Total numbers were similar on the Ottoman side, with 250,000 casualties and with somewhere between 65,000 and 85,000 killed. In other words, all told, there were almost half a million casualties of just the Gallipoli campaign. These numbers do pale in comparison to casualty figures from other parts of World War I and certainly for World War I as a whole, in which there were 17 million civilian and military deaths. But considering the length of the campaign and the fact that it ultimately made almost no difference in how the war played out makes it seem particularly tragic. In part because of the failure of the Gallipoli campaign, Winston Churchill was forced to resign his post as the first Lord of the Admiralty. He lost his seat in the House of Commons and did not even begin to politically recover until 1924. The Ottoman Empire, whose strength had been waning since before the war, collapsed in 1918. In November of that year, the Allies finally got control of the no longer defended Dardanelles Strait. Today, the Gallipoli campaign is an enormously important part of the national consciousness and identity of three nations, Australia, New Zealand, and Turkey, where the campaign is known as Chanakale. Australia and New Zealand were both relatively new as established nations within the British Empire during World War I. The Commonwealth of Australia was established on January 1st, 1901, although, of course, it had been a British colony much longer than that. New Zealand had become a nation with the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi on February 6th, 1840. Particularly for the Australian military, this was the first time so many men had fought on so large a scale, specifically as Australians. Heavily romanticized accounts of the valor and bravery of the Anzac soldiers came out almost immediately after the campaign had ended, including pieces by Charles Bean, the official correspondent from Australia, whose account drew from the epic poem Song of Roland. The first Anzac Day was celebrated in Australia on October 13, 1915. This first one was basically a memorial and a fundraiser for the surviving veterans. However, it almost immediately moved to April 25th, so the anniversary of the day of that first assault, and it gradually morphed into a memorial observance taking place annually and honoring all veterans of all wars, including both Maori and Pakeha, or European-descended contributions from New Zealand. Commemorations include memorials that take place at dawn, parades, and ceremonies. 
Anzac Day's popularity waned for a while after World War II as anti-war and anti-colonial sentiments started to rise in both Australia and New Zealand, but it experienced a resurgence in the 1990s. Going along with this has been the idea of the Anzac myth. This is the idea that Anzac soldiers were united by a unique brand of courage, friendship under fire, discipline, loyalty, and leadership, among other admirable qualities. And there has, of course, been some criticism of both Anzac Day and the Anzac myth. For example, whether they glorify war and whether they ignore the contributions of women who did things like working as nurses, worked in munitions factories and things like that during the war. In the earliest years of the memorials, mothers who had lost their children in the campaign really had a place of honor, but that gradually faded and the focus turned mostly toward the men. There are also some critics and theorists who contend that Anzac Day has become such an important national holiday in Australia and New Zealand because it does not have some of the cultural baggage tied to Waitangi Day and Australia Day, which can't really be discussed truthfully without getting into New Zealand and Australia's historical treatment of indigenous peoples. But just know that there's controversy around all that. Yeah, it's definitely a deeply important holiday in both of those places. And that's one of the reasons I think we got so many requests to talk about the campaign. Uh, but as is the case for us in the United States with some of our national holidays, not without criticism from some folks. The Gallipoli campaign, or as we said earlier, Tanakale, is also nationally important in Turkey. Mustafa Kemal was the co- the commander of the 19th Division of the Ottoman Army during the campaign, and he was one of the strategic minds behind the successful Ottoman defense of the peninsula. There have actually been people who said that if he had been in command of the Allied troops, the Allies would have taken the peninsula successfully. After the war, he became involved in the movement for Turkish independence, and when Turkey became a secular republic in 1923, he was its first president. He was given the surname Ataturk, meaning Father of the Turks, in 1935. So the importance of the Gallipoli campaign is important to the Turkish national identity, in part because of Ataturk's involvement in both the campaign and the founding of that nation. Like the Anzac myth in Australia and New Zealand, the campaign is connected to cultural identity in Turkey, tied to ideas like bravery and defense of the homeland. However, Anzac Day in Turkey has also had, to a lot of people's minds, a more specifically nefarious quality than in other nations. Turkey has been widely criticized for its refusal to acknowledge a mass deportation and massacre of Armenians by the Ottoman Empire, which many other nations have agreed was a genocide. A lot of people have asked us to do a podcast on the Armenian genocide, and I want to be clear, it is on the list. It will probably be a while before we can get to it, though. Focusing on the Gallipoli campaign, which only started a day after these uh, mass deportations and massacres started, sort of take some of the attention away from an anniversary that Turkey doesn't really want to talk about. As we said at the top of the show, the 100th anniversary of the campaign was this year, and memorials took place at Anzac Cove in what is now Turkey, with most of the demand for tickets coming for Australia and New Zealand. And I am not kidding at all if you are interested in this subject, Uh, especially in terms of like how the campaign became so culturally important to three different nations. Do pick up Jenny McLeod's book, Gallipoli. It's definitely worth reading. It is a very slender book. When I got it, I was actually like, really? I expected it to be twice as long (laughs) as it is. But it is really, really packed with a lot of information. And it does a great job of talking about both 
talking about the multiple different influences in the campaign and how the different sides viewed it. And also in acknowledging the fact that a lot of military history is definitely written from one side. And it talks about all the steps that were taken to try to make this not just be a one-sided look uh, at the campaign. So that one more time is uh, Gallipoli by Jenny McLeod. Tracy, do you also have a little bit of listener mail for us to enjoy? That I do. This is from Jeff. And Jeff says, hello, ladies. I just finished listening to the Harlem Hellfighters podcast. While I did not particularly like it, only because I rarely like things showing man's inhumanity to fellow men, I did find it interesting, very worthwhile. And African-American servicemen in the First World War is something I definitely missed in history class. Thanks for the enlightenment. I'm going to take a pause here and say I kind of feel similarly about a lot of our topics that are about men's inhumanity to man. I do not necessarily love working on those ones, but I think they are important. Uh, so to get back to the the listener mail, you mentioned again how many Americans think segregation was only in the South. I'm a fourth-generation Nevadan, born in Reno and raised in Las Vegas, but left the Silver State 15 years ago. Since most people outside the state only seem to know about the neon, desert, and brothels and little else about Nevada, I often seem to end up in conversations about the state. Because so many current Nevadans grew up elsewhere, even back home, there is a lack of knowledge about the state's history. I thought I'd share something I've always found interesting about the segregation in Las Vegas. Nevada's casinos were whites only until the early 60s. Few workers and no patrons were, quote, colored. Even entertainers had to use the back door and weren't allowed into restaurants and casinos. Besides the rising civil rights movement, the biggest change to this were the members of Hollywood's Rat Pack. Big names in show business would go to the Moulin Rouge, Las Vegas's black casino, to hang out since Sammy Davis Jr. was not allowed on the strip off the stage. The casino owners, mobsters for the most part back then, hated that their high-priced headliners weren't hanging out with the strip patrons bringing in more money and customers to the resorts. Frank Sinatra himself finally demanded Davis be allowed on the strip. The bosses caved, as most do when it comes to money, and the casinos were desegregated. The University of Nevada, Las Vegas, still has a Confederate soldier as the mascot and are still the rebels. I always thought that odd. Anyway, I hope you found this little tidbit interesting. If you already knew it, I bet you didn't learn it in history class. That is true. I learned it from this email. Jeff says, uh, keep up the great work and another thought-provoking podcast, Jeff. Thank you so much, Jeff. Uh, we like, I think it was more in our um, our podcast about Lindy Hop. We talked about uh, black entertainers not being able to be in the venue in some of the places. Like the Cotton Club was a, a club where the patrons were white, but the entertainers were black. I did not realize that that existed out in Nevada also. I had heard the Frank Sinatra story before because I maybe like Frank Sinatra a little bit. But, uh, yeah, it's one of those things that is interesting to think about. And it it kind of reframes that whole era in a new way for me whenever I think about it. Yeah. If you would like to write to us, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and we're also on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash mistinhistory. If you want to come to our parent company's website, which is howstuffworks.com, and put the word Gallipoli in the search bar, you'll find just all kinds of various things about World War One and Gallipoli and 
uh, how things are now and uh, also a bit specifically about Australian traditions. Uh, the talk about Anzac Day. If you would like to come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, we have an archive of every single episode we've ever done, show notes for this uh, episode and the episodes that Holly and I have worked on together, other cool stuff that we put up there periodically. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 